Welcome to Faith and Family, a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. And now from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood, and welcome to episode 37 of Faith and Family. Just a few months after entering the Catholic Church 24 years ago, I was asked to give four talks on why I became a Catholic. At the heart of those four talks was one entitled, Our Marriage Covenant and Our Covenant with God. It was a surprise to me that the talk touched a lot of people and subsequently led to the founding of the Family Life Center International. Last week, you heard part one of that talk, and in it I described how the two covenants, that is, the divine covenant, our covenant with God, and the marriage covenant are basically found in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And I shared how these two covenants are dynamically interrelated and profoundly reflect each other. So this week, in part two of Our Marriage Covenant and Our Covenant with God, you'll hear how a sermon I preached on marriage caused me to resign my Protestant pastorate and leave the congregation I founded. You'll also hear how I was rescued by St. John Paul II and then entered the Catholic Church. Let's join part two of Our Marriage Covenant and Our Covenant with God. What I was doing in my congregation during 1989, I decided to preach through the Bible. In our adult education class, I would teach a book of the Bible and then try to preach from it. My Sunday morning sermon were just going right through. And I had decided a fairly long time before we came to the Minor Prophets that I was going to preach on the prophet Hosea. And that week, I began my preparation in Hosea. And Hosea is a special prophet that was sent to Israel. And through his life, and through his marriage, he was to be a prophetic sign to the spiritual state of the covenant people. In other words, Hosea's covenant of marriage was to be a prophetic sign to the covenant people. I don't know if you've ever read Hosea, but uh, a, lo a lot of people have a hard time believing it. it actually happened. God told him to go and marry a harlot. Take a harlot for your wife. And he married her. And then she turns, becomes unfaithful, returns to her harlotry. And God says to him, go back and get her, ransom her out of her harlotry and take her again to yourself. And what God was showing through the incredible unfaithfulness of Gomer, Hosea's wife, was the covenant people. This is what they were doing with God. And yet through their sin, God in his infinite, incredible mercy and grace would reach out into this faithless people and make a new covenant with them. And of course, this whole thing is anticipating the coming of Christ and the new covenant. Well, during my study that week, exposing myself to Hosea, it all came back. I mean, it all came back. You know, the Holy Spirit brings conviction. Sometimes it takes a while for it to just grab you till you start living it and obeying it and it just all came to the surface I had some long talks with my wife that week I said you know uh, I, I, I thought of preaching something else and I don't know probably don't know me very well here yet but that wasn't my style uh, to change texts because they were too hard or the Bible happened to say something that uh, didn't want to hear um, 
And so I, I felt in good conscience I couldn't leave the text. And yet I recognized that in preaching this in a Protestant church, things could come just unraveled. And I prayed and I asked God to give me sensitivity to be faithful to his word and yet minister it in a way that would minister healing grace to people, not just unravel things. I have right in front of me this morning the introduction to that sermon. I'm going to read it for you, just a sentence or two. When a nation falls into apostasy, it can be very difficult to know it. Sin has a progressively dulling effect. The deeper and more widespread a culture falls into sin, the more difficult it can be to recognize the depth of apostasy. When, quote, everybody is doing it, unquote, namely falling into apostasy, there is no visible standard to reflect the departure from God. And I proceeded to go through the book of Hosea and describe how there had been a great turning from God and how this turning from God was evidenced in Hosea and his wife, or his wife turning from him from the covenant of marriage. What Hosea was commanded to do was shocking. But the prophets had to come to a people that had just fallen into spiritual slumber and, and say, wake up. God does mean what he says. There are consequences for departing from the truth of God's word. My application of this sermon I also have in front of me. But if the prophets consistently, and this goes right into the New Testament, you know, who opens up the New Testament? The last prophet of the Old Testament, John the Baptist. He lost his head for preaching on what I'm my subject this morning. Did you know that? He lost his head for that. You go to the closing chapters of the Bible. What is the Babylon, the Antichrist system to the kingdom of God and to the true church? How is that described as the harlot? The same words of the prophets. And our country is falling headlong into apostasy and we don't know it. The United States, according to Insight Magazine 1086, has the highest divorce rate in the world. According to Hosea's prophetic sign, this should tell us something. Also, what's going on with our covenant relationship with God. In my denomination, and it's a good denomination, good people, good men, but let me tell you, once you put the crack in the dam, you start just diluting Christ's commands. You start making one exception, there's two exceptions. There's three exceptions. Everything's an exception. And it doesn't end. You know, it happened in our congregations. Then it happened amongst our lay officers in our churches. And then it spread to the clergy within our denomination. I mean, this is a denomination that holds to God's word. And yet pastors divorced and remarried while in the pulpit. This would have been unthinkable even amongst Protestants a century ago. And yet it's going on. I served in a church, an interdenominational church in the 70s. I went back to have lunch with the pastor 10 years later. He was just getting ready for the 10th anniversary. That church, it was very interesting, it was a charismatic church with a, the core group, there were a lot of Mennonites. 
uh, our part of Florida, there's a lot of Mennonites who, who settled in that area and were brought into the charismatic movement and helped establish the beginning of that church. Well, the Mennonites have a very, very conservative, strict view of marriage. And so that church really didn't permit remarriage until, I believe it was 1976. And I was there 10 years later, and a pastor told me, I'm having a hard time finding a photograph from 76 that I can put on the bulletin board because I can't find a photograph of several people that well, the homes haven't been ripped apart in 10 years. This is a sin that runs generations. It goes to the third and fourth generation. I've counseled people whose parents you know, are living a beautiful Christian life but been unlawfully divorced and remarried and now I'm there with their children trying to talk them out of the same sin and I can't. It runs. It's running through our culture and it's like a fire burning out of control. We've gone past the lifelines. We've ignored them. We think they're going to hurt us. They're there for our life. They're there for our families. They're there for our marriages. Believe it or not, feeling as I do, I got through the sermon fine. I was amazed. I got through the sermon fine. I had liberty. I felt I preached with conviction. And yet, you know, I didn't try to unravel the whole fabric of the... Uh, Church, but you see, I made this mistake. Back in 1985, we started celebrating the Eucharist every Sunday. And I sat down after the ministry of the Word. We had an offering and a song, an offertory after that. And I thought I had made it. I thought I had kind of gotten through this latest wave of conviction. I sat down. And I had some of the most intense minutes of my life. I, I would describe it only in a similar way to the night I was here in San Diego. And it was time to turn or go forward. It was time to decide. And I was sitting there preparing my heart to come to the Lord's table. And the Holy Spirit put a wave of conviction over me. And to this day, I'm, 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 I'm coming to a fuller realization of what that conviction was. But God was putting on my heart, Steve, you're not going to do this. I, I didn't realize at that moment, I do now. <laughs> and it wasn't in that context, it wasn't even believed. But in the Eucharist, what is happening in that covenant between God and man? This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. John 6, unless you eat my flesh, we become one, one in the body of Christ in the Eucharist. And there were those in my congregation, some of those through my sin, through my counsel, through my marrying them unlawfully living together. Jesus said quite clearly in Mark 10:11, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Marriage is a one flesh relationship as the covenant and the sacrament is a one flesh relationship. I would 
I, I just couldn't do it. And I was sitting there, and I'll just share with you some of the thoughts that went through my mind. Because you're probably wondering, you know, what does a Protestant minister go through when they convert anyhow? But, I mean, I was sitting there thinking, I mean, this is my job. I mean, let's face it, uh, you know, this is my job. I have a family. I have sowed 20 years of my life into this. Beyond my job, this is my calling. I put my heart into this. And I recognize if I'd stand up there and say, no, that was it. That was my moment. I just didn't know what to do. I mean, here's a whole congregation sitting up expecting me to lead them in the Lord's Supper, and I've never done this before. But I stood up. I said, I'm sorry. I said, I am not prepared to administer this this day. I pointed to myself. And of course, just having a preach a sermon on adultery and stuff, my brother-in-law is in there thinking, man, has he been, you know, what's this guy doing? You know, I mean, he's married to my sister and all these televangelists had been getting in scandals about that and stuff. You know, everybody's thinking the worst. With the elders, we go right into my study. We sat down. I just told them what's up. And it was over. My ministry was over. I had to lay it down. I just could not, in good conscience, in that context, administer the sacrament. If I had not had the sacrament, you know, I talked about yesterday, about their eyes were opened and the breaking of bread. I mean, I had just preached a sermon I had been intensely convicted on all week and for years. And yet I got through it. But I couldn't come to that table. I could not do it. Of course, I didn't have an apostolic right to do it. I didn't know it at that time. <laughs> but I have never done it since then. there had not been the Lord's table that day, I dare say I'd still be a Protestant. Perhaps it would be surfacing every now and then and putting it back down. Talk to my elders and they realize it was over. I mean, you, I mean, here I had gotten all my people enthused about having the Lord's Supper every week and said, sorry, I can't do it. So, I was out. I submitted my resignation and for me the transition was easy in that I'd been so involved in pro-life activity anyhow, I was just, just going to be released into full-time pro-life work. I can't tell you how alone I felt uh, those days following that. I thank God that my wife was with me, uh, not just saying, you know, kind of cheerleader type with me, but I mean, in her heart, we both believed that this was true, and truth was worth standing for, and this was a truth that was hurting people such a deep level that it was worth standing for if it meant putting it down. But, you know, in the next few days in my study, I just felt so alone. I mean, you know, I'm a, I was a Protestant. And, you know, this is just... Very few are thinking this way. In kind of an act of desperation, I went to my bookshelf and I pulled off an almanac and I just looked up to see how many Catholics there were in the world. I did this because I said, I'm not a Catholic, but at least they believe what I do. I'm not crazy. And I found out that there's one or two of those hundreds of millions that don't quite follow the church teaching on this. <clears throat> but, but just you know, reassurance. And, of course, the hard questions started coming back. Because, you know, 
The leaders of my church, my elders, were under intense conviction under this thing. We called the authors of this book, uh, uh, Jesus and Divorce. We talked with them. We got research materials out. And the hard question came, you know, what do you do with people who are already unlawfully divorced and remarried? What do you do with these people? This is not an abstract question. What do you do with them? Is there any way out of this? And we came up, believe it or not, with, with some ideas. We Through a lot of prayer and thought and study, and one of my elders had come in to talk to me and recommended I read a certain book. And uh, uh, they had talked about divorce and remarriage and such. And I had went and read that and I put it back up on my bookshelf. And I don't know why, but a few years before, I bought some paperback editions of Vatican II. <laughs> and I just saw them on my bookshelf and I said, I just wonder what this has to say about all this. I would so recommend, you can read it. This is not, in fact, this is probably the highest recommended reading, more than the book I recommended, because it's very understandable. You can read Vatican II, the sections on, on marriage and family. I read this, and my heart soared. I said, this is it. This is beautiful. This is true. And then it came to the section on the pastoral care of those who have been unlawfully remarried after divorce. I, I just, there, first of all, at the very core, there was total and complete fidelity to Christ's teachings. But all around that core was tenderness, compassion, sensitivity to the situations, are there children, how to handle this, and yet at the same time, guard the sanctity of marriage and the Eucharist. I was awestruck. I would have gone on to become an Anglican or an Orthodox, but I found there was only one church in the world that believed what I believed with all my heart the Bible taught regarding marriage. I had to then get these apologetic books and start wrestling, but I didn't want to. But I had to. I'm so thankful I had to. But then a question, and listen to this question. I've tried to say it, but I want to re-emphasize it. And I'll particularly talk about my previous denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America. These are good people. These are people who love God. These are men, the men I served with, their skills and ability and diligence to dig into God's Word, to stand up for God's Word. I mean, these are good people. And I had to ask myself, how could they miss it? How could they miss something so big? Let's go back here just for a second. What's the book about? You can turn to the opening pages. Old and New Covenants. God making covenant with man and then God making a covenant of marriage and you shoot right through the scripture. Christ coming and, and just bringing the, the dignity and the nobility of himself into the marriage ceremony and the new wine of the new covenant. What Christ elevating marriage and taking back what was lost before the fall in Genesis 2. The stony heart's gone. Now we're in a new covenant with God. We can love people again. We can have real marriages again. 
It's written all over the passages of the Bible. And the men I served with weren't afraid to dig into the Old Testament. They knew the prophets. They knew what the prophets said about apostasy and adultery. How could they miss it? How could a church... I mean, you have to recognize, these people are very sincere in their faith. How could a church so faithful to their creeds and faithful to what they perceive the Word of God miss something so fundamental to the very nature of the church? Because if you believe one is permissible, then you believe the other. How could a church miss marriage? I could see a church missing, you know, the manner and time and date of the Lord's return or uh, the mode or method of baptism or, or some differing methods of worship or something. But how could the church miss marriage? That's who she is. She's the bride of Christ. The answer was real obvious. Real obvious. She was guilty of the sin of divorce from the one holy Catholic an apostolic church. Sure, there's problems. Tremendous problems at the time of the Reformation with the Bride of Christ. You have problems in your home, don't you? I mean, mine's perfect, but I mean, you have problems in your home. That doesn't justify a divorce, does it? You can have major problems, but you don't leave. There's a reason why the Protestant church is blind to adulterous remarriages from unlawful divorces. And that's because she has separated herself. She's divorced herself from the church. And once you do that, you become deceived by your own sin. And therefore, you're blind to who you are and what the church is. For years, I had either family members interested in the ministry or young men interested in the ministry or elders in my church thinking of going on, preparing for the ministry, and they'd say, well, you know, what books do you read or where do you go to school? And I kept saying to them, kept saying to them, if you're going to be a pastor, the one thing you need to learn about and ask this question, what is the church? This is the question I've been asking for years. What is the church? Because if you're going to be a pastor, you have to know what you're pastoring. Don't just take it as it's given. What is the church? The church is the holy, spotless bride of Christ that is married to Him in time and through eternity. And the Protestant divorce has led to the avalanche. Well, first it led to then a denial of marriage as a sacrament, as an indissoluble covenant bond, to now the civil contract. It's breakable in limited circumstances till now it's become breakable in any circumstance. And that same thinking, unfortunately, has invaded much of the American Catholic Church. And we see just a run into the deception of this sin, which people think they can get away from. And it, it just veils and clouds your whole concept of the church, of Christ, who you are. Marriage isn't something simply you do. It's some, it, 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 it impacts who you are. You become one, and it impacts your relationship with the church. I've done some harebrained things, but most people who know me, even though they don't like some of the harebrained things I have done, will say, Steve is the type of guy who will try, at least, to live what he believes. I tried, in the most sincere fashion, to live a life 
honoring to Jesus Christ to preach his word. And yet, you know, I have married people I shouldn't have married. I'm well educated. I know the Bible from cover to cover. I made a terrible mistake. Terrible. One of the easiest doctrines for me, in a way, I mean, I had to struggle a little bit, but, you know, an infallible teaching magisterium in the church. Man, I made some big ones. We need the teaching of the Catholic Church. I find it, in a way, so ironic that so many Catholics are wanting to bolt the church for these doctrines which are given in such a prophetic manner and through John Paul II, he is a man for the day of apostasy. He is holding forth Christ's truths. I just so encourage you to heed the teachings of the church. They are your lifelines. They are the hope of this age of apostasy. They're true. Listen to them. Heed them. And hear the very voice of the bridegroom teaching of what is a covenant of marriage. May we pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, I pray that these words would go forth to heal, to convict if necessary, to bring light on who you are, who we are, who we are with you and with one another. Father, may you place in each of our hearts a profound thankfulness for preserving the teaching of Jesus Christ in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. This is Steve Wood, and you've been listening to Faith and Family, episode 37, and part two of my first Catholic marriage talk entitled, our marriage covenant, and our covenant with God. You heard me outline how the divine covenant between God and his people is deeply reflected in the covenant of marriage. That's why when the Old Testament prophets condemned apostasy, that's unfaithfulness to the divine covenant, they could use the word adultery to describe it. Why? Because the closest thing to unfaithfulness to God is unfaithfulness in marriage. And you can be assured when there's widespread unfaithfulness to the marriage covenant through adultery, apostasy is close at hand. Next week, I'll be talking about a deadly virus that's trying to infect the Catholic Church and the sacrament of matrimony. Be sure to join me for an extremely important update on how the covenant with God and our covenant of marriage is relevant to the greatest threat against Catholic marriage in 500 years. Faith and Family is a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. Visit us online at familylifecenter.net. To order a CD copy of today's broadcast, order online at www.familylifecenter.net.